0: This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by Mr. William Hazelgrove. Mr. Hazelgrove is a national best-selling author of over 20 books. The New York Times, C-SPAN, and USA Today, among others, have all done features on his books. Today, we're discussing Mr. Hazelgrove's newest book, Morristown: The Darkest Winter of the Revolutionary War, and the Plot to Kidnap George Washington. Mr. Hazelgrove, thank you for taking the time to join me today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So to start, I want to give listeners a little background on who you are before we consider uh, Morristown. So how did you get started as a writer, and when did you decide that writing would be your career?
1: Mm, I got a master's in history out of uh, college, and then I started writing novels, uh, and I realized after I wrote my first draft of my novel, oh, this is what I want to do. Uh Took a long time to get published. Finally, did, and then I read ten novels, and uh, and then uh, I switched to what's called now narrative nonfiction, which is basically uh, everything you see on Netflix. That's all narrative nonfiction. Um, you know, it's it's history written like a novel, uh, but it's in my case, it's all footnoted, so it's true. Um, but it's it's really a very 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 engaging form of telling a story that. A, you may not know, and B, it's told in a dramatic style that just pulls the reader in. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's really, um, in a thumbnail, That's that's been my career. So yeah, so 20 bucks later, here I am.
0: So you write about fiction and nonfiction, as you said, and, and like you said, it's mainly dealing with history. So history has obviously been a major part of your career. So how did that passion yeah. for history, and then also sharing history with others through fiction and nonfiction writing, how did that come about?
1: Uh, you know, that's a great question. Um, I had a great professor, um, uh, Dr. Shadwick, and um, he was very, very engaging the way he would lecture. So that was really, I, I was like, oh, I want to be a history major. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I went to grad school and got a master's in history. But, you know, when I started writing, I really wasn't keen on history. I was just sort of starting out and... Um, and then I just sort of became fascinated with, you know, what people had done before. And I realized how much they're just like us. You know, these people who pop out of this from history, be it Teddy Roosevelt, Wright Brothers, Edith Wilson, Al Capone. Um, you know, these are all people who lived in their times. <laughs> Al Capone's probably a stretch. But, um, you know, they... They had the same wants, desires, uh, insecurities, um, George Washington, you know, especially, even though he's like a deity to us. Um, And so that fascinated me. And then, you know, spinning it up and finding the thing that most people don't know is really my forte. I mean, that's what I do. If you go to 160 Minutes the Race to Save the RMS Titanic, which just came out two months ago, um, it'll tell you a story about Titanic that you have not heard, I guarantee you. And, um, and you know, we're in a time of demythologizing history, so that's what I do. I sort of go, okay, here's the story you've heard, but I'm going to tell you the real story. Here's, here's the real story of George Washington. Here's the real story of Titanic. Here's the real story of the first war president. Here's the real story of the Wright brothers, you know, because there is a real story, because history... Is a lot of mythology. And now, <clears throat> as as you know, tearing down statues and things like this, um, people are like, mm, no, we want to know really what happened. If that's what I do.
0: So as a student who oftentimes struggles with writer's block on my end, as I'm told to write papers, I'm stunned that you've written over 20 full-length books. I mean, I hold Morristown here, and it's 215 pages plus the endnotes. And you just talked about your book on the Titanic, which came out two months ago, and now Morristown. So how do you find the inspiration to write so much? You've talked about this a little bit with this idea of history being a real story, but how are you inspired to be able to write so much about various historical topics?
1: Um, you know, I find something that's really interesting to me, like, let's take George Washington, Morristown. And, you know, I read, I read about somewhere... Maybe it's in a magazine article about this plot to kidnap him. I'm like, I've never heard of this. So you know, usually that starts it. I'm sort of intrigued by, hmm, i never heard of this. And then I go down, and then I find something that most people don't know. You know, a part of history that people don't know. Um, I started out writing literary fiction, which is sort of like writing classical music compared to rock and roll. Um, I mean, my early books, Ripples, Tobacco Sticks, My Car. These are pretty heavy duty literary mainstream fiction, and that's very difficult to write. Um, so when I switched to narrative nonfiction, uh, the story's there. So it's sort of like going, again, from classical to rock and roll, you know, it's like it's just a lot easier in terms of after the research is done, you know, you sort of turn on the blender and, and there it is, you know. Um, also, too, um, writing something that as you do it, you get better and your brain gets wired up. Because when I first started writing, you know, it was awful. It was just like very, very hard extremely hard to write. Um, but over the years, you know, you, you just – that's how your brain gets wired up. I mean, I think most people in the arts who, uh, you know, we know of, who pursue a career in the arts, um, it's because they're allowed years to incubate and develop their talent. I mean, I'm always astonished when someone start playing the piano. I'll be like, wow, you're really good. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, I was one time going to be in a band, but decided to go to work, you know, whatever. So, I mean, maybe it's that fork in the road So, people who decide – I'm going to do this thing for good or for bad. And even if I'm not successful, I'm still going to do this thing. So, you know, it's just, it's really, I hate to say it, but it's just, you know, repetition, 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 just writing, 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 writing. And then suddenly it starts to get easier.
0: This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by Mr. William Hazelgrove, author of the recently released book, Morristown, The Darkest Winter of the Revolutionary War and the Plot to Kidnap George Washington. So turning now to Morristown, uh, sure. Mr. Hazelgrove, tell us what the book tries to share with readers. And we don't want to, to divulge any spoilers, but kind of give us the pitch. What's it about? Why should someone read it?
1: Well, I think we have this idea of the revolution, you know, most people. And it's sort of this, you know, there was Valley Forge where things got very difficult, and then uh, George Washington and his army sort of popped out of that, and then things were pretty smooth sailing right up to Yorktown. But the truth is, in 1779, the revolution was coming apart. Um, George Washington went into winter camp; his men were unpaid, starving, deserting. Um, the American populace had become very tired. This war dragged on like six years, uh a lot of people thought the Americans were gonna lose. Um and coincidentally this is when Benedict Arnold started to do his thing. Um and so, you know, this was a very dark chapter. Also, this brought the worst winter in a century to Morristown. Okay, so what's that mean? Right, so George washington essentially sitting up in New Jersey. The British are in New York. <clears throat> now, the Hudson River bisects the two of them. It's like a moat. Well you know, Washington assumes he was safe up there in Morristown, staying in the Ford Mansion. But what, what happens? A once-in-a-century occurrence, the Hudson River freezes. Suddenly, a moat is a bridge. And there's a guy named General Simcoe who has a vendetta against Washington. We can talk about that some more. And he hatches a plan to go snatch George Washington out of his bed, bring him back, <clears throat> and basically uh, hold him for ransom and... And he thinks that will end the revolution. He's probably right. Without George Washington, there really was no revolution. I mean, he was the spiritual leader, the physical leader. He was it. So this plan, you know, involved 500 men in this incredible uh, three different uh, diversions, two diversions, one sort of SEAL team forced to go grab him. Um, This was really a Hail Mary. This was, you know, I always use the analogy of two punch-drunk fighters um, at this point. That's sort of what the Americans and the British were. Both were sick of it. Both just couldn't get a, you know, a knockout punch. And so this was the British going for the knockout punch.
0: So there's something, obviously we've talked about a little bit already, but there's something in the book's title that really intrigues me. Uh, the plot to kidnap George Washington. And I had never heard about this plot. So you just mentioned the river freezing um, and we had this General Simcoe. But can you give some more background on the plot and um, sure. just why okay, that so, became such a part of your book?
1: Yeah. Well, here's the thing kidnapping was sort of an accepted part of war at this time. There was actually a plot to kidnap Martha Washington from Mount Vernon by the British. And the Americans had plots to kidnap various uh, generals on the British side. Well, this came about, again, General Simcoe was. Uh, uh, British officer who was imprisoned by the Americans, treated badly, he gets out and he hates George Washington. And when the Hudson freezes, he had what's called the Queen's Rangers. And the Queen's Rangers are a force, of like a, a mounted SEAL team force of men who can ride fast, uh, have carbines, can shoot from their saddle, sort of strike force. And so he devises a plan for the Queen's Rangers to gallop across the Hudson River at night, go up through New Jersey, about 25 miles, up to Morristown. They know from spies, George Washington is staying about three miles from his um, troops in the Ford Mansion, his bedroom's in the second floor in the back. They know he'll be in bed with Martha Washington. Now, George Washington has what's called a life force. This is sort of his secret service. And they figure what they'll do is they'll sneak in, kill whatever life force members, lifeguard rather, lifeguard members are guarding him grab him out of the bed, throw him on a horse, then gallop down through New Jersey, back across Hudson before the Americans you know, know what hit them. And it's a very, very audacious plan, but <clears throat> it actually goes to the highest levels. And two diversionary forces are created to sort of suck the Americans in, and they hire these guys called the Black Hussars. The Black Hussars are German mercenaries, and they have death or glory on their caps. And they're just ruthless. And they're actually going to be the ones who end up going after George Washington. And there's real fear the Black blackguards will just kill him, you know. I mean, and that's looked very down on. The, you know, the whole kidnapping is you keep the guy alive. So George Washington is very much in peril, and the revolution again falling apart. There will actually be a mutiny in Morristown. The men aren't eating. They aren't getting paid. They build a thousand log huts. To, you know, ride out this winter of just one snowstorm after another, one one balloons after another, one sub-zero day after another. It really is the breaking point. It is it is the darkest winter of the revolution.
0: So you talk about how the British uh, recognized George Washington as really important, a driving factor in the Americans winning this war. Is it fair to say that the U.S. would have lost without Washington being there as the main general, and why or why not?
1: I'd say yes, absolutely. The The revolution was a ragtag bunch of men from various colony states, rather, and there was, was a lot of local militias stitched together. They're, they're, they had nothing. They barely had clothes. They barely had weapons. Um, their method of fighting was to attack the British, and then melt away, well, much like the Viet Cong and, and Vietnam would do to the Americans. Um, and this kept them alive. But to keep the, the cause, the honorable cause, as Washington called it, alive, you, you, you needed to inspire people, because that's really all you had. Because you couldn't pay them. You couldn't even feed them. So all you had was people who were willing to put their lives on the line For what Henry Knox would later call the unborn millions yet to come. That this was the creation of this country based on freedom and liberty that had not been seen on the earth yet. And so all you could do, you you needed some leader who was half God, half man, who could inspire people to keep fighting. And also, also, be a brilliant leader and do the unexpected thing, which Washington did. He did it, you know, around, around Boston with Henry Knox. He went and, you know, it's one of my other books, Henry Knox's Noble Train, uh, when he went to get cannons. He did it crossing the Delaware, you know, Princeton and Trenton, attacking on Christmas Eve. So, so you, you know, not only was he a spiritual leader, but he was very much the, the commander. And he was very flawed, I mean, in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong, extremely flawed. But he was superhuman in a way. You know, he was physically very large for his time, you know, like six two, six three. 6'3", v- superhuman strength. His strength was known. And he had that thing called destiny, which, believe me, after I've written all these books, I'm like, oh, there's something called destiny. There's a reason these people survive. And Washington had that. You might call it luck or whatever. But without Washington, no, the American Revolution would not have, come up, come, would not have ended the way it did.
0: This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by Mr. William Hazelgrove, author of the recently released book Morristown. So in the book's prologue, you talk a little bit about how Washington's leadership abilities were actually doubted by some.
1: When they recruited him to, you know, lead in the revolution, he had been living off his wife's money on a plantation. Um, He wasn't a great military commander, And, you know, a lot of people thought he had blundered in in a lot of decisions. A lot of times he was criticized for not doing anything. And there was a thing called the Conway Cabal, which was actually a group of generals and officers who sort of plotted to replace Washington. And it didn't come off, but it shows you the level of discontent. I mean, and, you know, again... The American people were not really behind this at this point. They were tired of the war. A lot of people, half probably half of the, the Americans thought we should have stayed with Britain. Um, the economy had suffered. Um, and they weren't willing to give up their food for the troops, which is really bad because the farmers had food for the troops. But American currency was so worthless that if you had a wheelbarrow of American currency, the wheelbarrow would be worth more. So, so what did they do? The the farmers would sell their food to the British, almost called the London Market, because they'd get gold for it. And the troops knew this, and this is one reason they mutinied. Was they were like, you know what? Nobody is supporting us. We aren't even getting fed, and you know this mutiny broke out. So, so this is a very, very dark time.
0: So you talk a little bit about this at the end of the book. But how ultimately did the Americans overcome the darkest winter, as you put it, and then this powerful British army to gain independence? You've mentioned physical factors, some leadership factors, but what really culminated in the Americans' victory?
1: You know, really, it was one, the ability to survive. Two, obviously, Washington, the Kinepp plan did not come to fruition, but That's a whole story in itself. Um, And three, probably um, the high luck of George Washington at the end of this time, where he survived. And actually, the British did attack Morristown, and Washington was able to repulse them. And at the same time, Benedict Arnold's great plot, which is a whole part of the book, um, Benedict Arnold was sort of like a uh, an old time James Bond, I mean and, you know he and his wife were more Peggy Schiffle were more like Bonnie and Clyde. He wanted twenty thousand dollars from the British um to set give them West Point on the hudson i mean it, it's It's amazing, and so at any rate, that blows up at the last minute. Washington discovers the plot. Bennett Garb just barely gets away so you know, at the, end, at the end of this time, and also the French start to get very involved in the war, at the end of the time what I can probably say is that the Americans survived. And remember, the British are over here. Um, they have to bring everything over from Britain. It's costly. This is a huge continent. This, this landmass, they can't control it. And it's really one of attrition. The British are finally going to get tired of it. If the Americans can just survive, and that's really what they did on Morristown. You know, the, in the darkest winter of Morristown is they survived to fight another day.
0: So we're almost out of time here, but if listeners want to learn more about you, connect with you, and purchase Morristown or one of your other books, how can they do that?
1: No, oh, sure. Go to williamhazelgrove.com. There's a ton of media on there. There's WGN Television, Radio, UK, Daily Express, Lots and lots of interviews on this, so you can get a lot more. Um, You can just Google, you know, my name, Morristown, and you can get the book anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Now, speaking of that, I will tomorrow be in Barnes & Noble, uh, the 20th, in Clarendon Hills signing copies of my books. So if you're up there, come on up. I'll be there from 11 to 4 tomorrow.
0: Great. Well, Mr. Hazelgrove, thanks so much for your time. We've enjoyed talking about Morristown with you.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, and I've been joined by Mr. William Hazelgrove, author of the recently released book, Morristown, now available for purchase wherever you find books.